Welcome to this third episode of our podcast in our series on research-informed teaching. I'm Catherine Hobbs. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Petya Petrova from the Academic Practice Directorate at UWE, with her guests, Professor Joanne Reeve and Professor Matthew Morgan, who are both from the Hull York Medical School. This is a longer episode of our podcast series as it covers a number of interlinked topics. Petty's two guests are academics who deliver medical education alongside practice, management and research. I was particularly interested by their discussion about problem-based learning in medical education, an approach that's been quite long established in that area, but is just starting to be more explored in other disciplines. What I learned from their discussion is that whilst they feel that PBL, problem-based learning, moves beyond the traditional poor knowledge into people for two years and then expect them to be creative after that, which has seemed to me to be a bit of an odd way of doing education for a long time. They do point out that there is an issue that PBL perhaps doesn't create a sense of what research is and what there is out there that isn't already known. It's it's still a bit too solutions focused and doesn't help students to understand how knowledge is constructed and created and what the uncertainty is around it. And that's particularly important in medicine, obviously, because you can tend to think that medicine tells you everything, everything is known and that every illness has a solution. And of course, that's not the case. And medical students themselves need to understand that. So I found that a very interesting part of the discussion. They then moved on to quite a lengthy discussion about assessment and how assessing knowledge may counteract that idea that there is unknown, there is uncertainty, and we're perhaps reinforcing that. So that's a really interesting part of their discussion. And finally, they talk about the challenge of the systematic separation of research and education within the university environment. They're funded separately, they're managed separately, and people often have one title or another. And they speak quite powerfully about how education is somehow seen as the lesser of the two when you look at, for example, job roles and job titles. But what I liked at the end is that they came to a shared viewpoint about how the university is what happens in between those two things, the education and the research, which I thought was a really interesting and powerful concept and how we can better get to that for many others who perhaps see it as two isolated areas. Thanks, Catherine. This is obviously my favourite episode. I really enjoyed the conversation I had with Matt and Joanne. I particularly enjoyed it because, as you said, this the, the entire conversation was about what is the purpose of higher education and what is the purpose of a university and everything stems from that and i really enjoy discussing and thinking about the topic of research informed teaching because ultimately it is a topic about what we are and what we are for therefore the discussion went widely and deeply into different topics including the topic of assessment which we didn't anticipate in a discussion about research-informed um, teaching. I'm really taken by Joanne's conceptualization of professional development or professional education for um, general practitioners. And she draws on the work, and it reminded me of the work of Donald Sean, who in the 1980s was already writing about how education is not sufficient for the complex challenges in the world. And of course, the level of complexity that we live in has, uh, well, increased exponentially since since the 1980s. So, So that challenge still exists. 
And the interesting thing that, that you talked about just now, which was around how you assess and develop practitioners. Joanna also wanted to develop practitioners who are aware that they and their practice contributes to the knowledge base of the profession. And therefore that grounding in, in research and, and understanding how research is produced and the limitations of research also needs to be a part of that. And of course, that also draws on, on Donald Sean when he talks about developing our own theories from, from our practice. I loved that it kept with a discussion about academic identity, because in the same way we talk about what universities are for and what's nature of higher education, that also then comes down to who are we as academics and what's the nature of our academic practice. Um, and that, that discussion clearly showcased how the external context affects our self-identity and the way we approach our roles and our we be able to express our values in the professional context. Thanks, Petia, for that reflection. So you gathered from our introduction, this is quite a long episode, so settle down and enjoy, um, and we'll see you at the other end. My name is Petia Petrova, Associate Director of Academic Practice at the University of the West of England in Bristol. I'm very excited to welcome today our podcast guests, Joanne Reeve and Matthew Morgan. Joanne Reeve is Professor of Primary Care Research at Howe York Medical School. Welcome, Joanne. Thanks, Patia. Lovely to be here. Matthew Morgan is Deputy Dean and Professor of Renal Medicine and Medical Education, also at Howe York Medical School. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Patia. Lovely to be here. Thank you. So I'm Joanne. I'm a GP or Consultant in General Practice general practice medicine and a professor of primary care research. So my work is really across all of those roles is about tackling the, the knowledge work of expert generalist practice, what, what it is that we do in, in everyday practice and, and how we do that so that we can learn that so we can support the redesign of primary care practice. Thank you, Joanne. I think we're going to talk about this word redesign in, in, a, in a few beats, potentially. Um, I'm a doctor. I qualified for medical school a while ago. I still work part-time in the NHS as a consultant kidney specialist and then within the university I'm the deputy dean and nobody ever knows what that really means but it's a senior management role and alongside that I do teaching and I'm also a researcher um, doing uh, research for patients to improve outcomes for people with this rare disease and vasculitis. So a bit of everything. Uh, thank you, Matt. I had to read about vasculitis <laughs> before our meeting because I had absolutely no idea what that is. Would you just tell us in three sentences? Okay, so it, it's a rare disease where the body's immune system, for reasons we don't fully understand, starts to attack the lining of your own blood vessels and it particularly gives people kidney failure, but it can also damage their lungs and eyes and skin and joints and all sorts of things. And if you don't treat it properly, fewer than 10% of people will survive one year with the diagnosis. But it is a rare disease. Thank you, Matt. Now, John, you talked to us about um, your work is in the context of general practitioner and general practitioner research. Does your work involve teaching? 
So yes, I'm involved in thinking about how we teach general practice primary care understanding and principles and practice to undergraduates, so people who are training in, in medicine. I am um, involved in teaching people who are learning to be general practitioners and also advanced cl clinical practitioners and, and the allied health professionals who work now in the primary care setting. And then I teach um, qualified clinicians and, and as part of their continuing professional development roles and things as well. And then I see teaching as part of the dissemination practice of the research we do as well. So teaching is is an integral part of, of a lot of what I do, really. I was very pleased when both of you agreed to take part of this conversation and you managed to find time in your busy schedules for this. I'm just curious about why this conversation was of interest to you and why you accepted the invitation, what it is about the topic of linking research and teaching in higher education that you found of particular interest? My interest in this question perhaps it comes from a conversation that started very early when I was at Hims Medical School, when there was a paper by a guy called Wenzel in the New England Journal of Medicine of all places that, that talked about medical education in an era of alternative facts. So the idea of how do we teach but therefore, how do we practice? How do we understand the role of being a doctor in a world where, where there are many different views on what is fact, what is right and wrong? Um, and, and so it's really that that was sort of the, the I suppose, the trigger I needed to shift a, a thinking from it's not about what you know to it's how you use what you know. For me, that was unlocking something I was already working on anyway really so so for me and, and and the work at hims it's always been about how do we support hull york medical school thinking to to recognize that you you can't have education without research just as you can't have research without education because it's all about the knowledge work of professional practice thank you so your interest in this conversation is very much grounded on the fact that the basis that underpins your work is this that the way research and te teaching interact in general practice education so 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 it's something that you are working an area you're working in quite uh, deeply yeah so it's how they interact in in general practice professional practice not just in education but actually how do we work in practice so for me evidence-based medicine as one way of understanding how we use knowledge in practice is insufficient for a lot of the job the daily work of general practice primary care the goal is how do we how do we expand our understanding of, of the knowledge work of practice and you need both education and research and, and the methods as well as the outputs of both of those to make that happen. Thanks, Joanne. Let us come back to the methods uh, and um, inquiry-based medicine, because um, I think that's a really important area that we'll unpack in some depth. Before we do that, though, I just wanted to check um, Matt's motivations and interest in this conversation. I, I think I'm probably coming from a similar place to Joanne, really. It it was one of the things when I was getting much more involved in education a few years ago and there was lots of this discussion within the university I was in at the time, how are we going to do research led and how are we going to do research informed practice and it just never occurred to me that we were doing anything other than research led and research informed practice and it took me quite a lot of work to understand 
what it was that people thought we weren't doing because for me a bit like China it research led research performed practice whether that be how we use our research to inform clinical practice and how we educate our and our students and our postgraduate trainees and our colleagues or how we use um, our understanding of pedagogic research and, and medical education pedagogic research is a huge field in its own right how we use that to then develop and design better training or whether it is how we're then using that to train our clinical colleagues to become better teachers and better educators within their clinical sphere as well it's just such a fundamental part of everything that i i feel i do and that my, my colleagues are doing that it just never occurred to me that there was a, a different way of doing it where where there was this separation between research and, and teaching so so that that so coming from that background that that's why when you suggested this I thought yeah this would be a really interesting conversation to to have and think about a bit more because I do think in medicine particularly or healthcare maybe particularly it, it's such a fundamental part of most people's clinical practice education that that you struggle to separate the two I think. So you mentioned how in medical education research informs practice but you also have have pedagogic research that informs teaching and of course I think I'm aware and I suspect many of our listeners may be aware that there's a huge and very strong field of research in terms of medical education. Do you see these as the two key ways of research informing practice, research informing teaching? It's the way we think about clinical practice research and the way we then translate that research into clinical practice which can only be done through education in its broadest terms really but then also how we understand the best ways of educating and informing healthcare workers in, in this scenario particularly how we then understand the best ways of doing that whether that be at undergraduate or postgraduate level um, I think are the two big areas that, that for me are key to this. Thanks, Matt. So I think this leads us nicely to what Joanne was hinting at earlier. Uh, and, and you've written on this topic, Joanne, where you see a shift from evidence-based medicine to scholarship-based medicine. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I did call it scholarship-based medicine. I, I, I've changed my titles of that all the time. But it goes back to the Vensel paper I was talking about as well, and and we described it in the in the College of GPs as as the banana rama principle that it's not what you know, it's how you use what you know. So for me, educational practice that or the educational practice I've been involved in for too long now has been about a focus on knowledge, on giving people knowledge and testing that they have that knowledge, and then they've jumped over a hoop that allows them to move over what wherever they go to. But knowledge isn't sufficient for, for clinical practice in, in, in any form of complex practice, of which general practice primary care is one of those settings. So I, I, I'm not saying this is exclusive to general practice by any means. Um, I am um, reflecting that that's my background and that's where I work. So, so I tend to use that example. But Matt and I have talked about um, generalism and how generalism works across um, different contexts and for example and I think generalist practice whole person medicine is is a good example of this 
So if we know that the, the current educational practice that is evidence-based medicine that defines a body of knowledge according to a hierarchy of evidence and, and then defi defines an, an educational tool that tells people how to search for that knowledge, how to ask the right questions, search for that knowledge, appraise that knowledge, and then put it into practice. And there's a little bit of there's just uh, I, so for me that that last bit isn't is the bit that's not developed far enough um but if, if that's the educational model that links the research model to clinical practice then there's there's a problem there's a gap so my work recognizes for example john gabbay's work one of the most highest cited bmj papers in the first decade of this century anyway that talks about mind line so it talks about the way that clinicians in practice create and construct knowledge in practice, in context. So take the guidelines, take the evidence, but then use it as a source of data to inform the contextual construction of a new body of knowledge that helps them work with their patient. And it's that knowledge work that, that I'm really, really interested in because I think it challenges current research practice, but it also challenges for me the educational practice I've I've been encouraged to be part of and therefore it's informing the work that I'm now doing both changing the way I do research and changing the way I do educational practice too. Thank you. So let's unpick these two elements in a little bit of detail and Matt feel free to come in um, at any point you, you wish because um, Joanne you talked about your perspective challenges the way we teach medical education and then the way we think about research in, in medicine. And that leads me to, to think about some of the conversations and observations I've had working with academics, teams and programs in different institutions, where there is a very structured thinking where we will give all the knowledge in the first couple of years, then possibly in the second and third year, we will think about the research skills of students, students being able to conduct research and inquiry in their own right. And somewhere in between, there is the link bet between what we've learned and how that would influence our practice as professionals. Um, and I take take your point that this is sometimes, it can't be a leftover thought, or it may be that we leave that for students to figure out once they leave university. So I really want to, to unpack that challenge to education. I think that is a tension, and, and I find that particularly interesting having recently moved between two medical schools that educate their undergraduates in quite a different way and thinking about the way that undergraduates start to understand research. So both medical schools absolutely taught research methods, but one had a has a, a much more traditional format, the way you've just described two years of a lot of knowledge transfer with some you know, education and training about how to access and assimilate and, and appraise that knowledge. Was him, Hull York Medical School has a much more problem based learning ethos, which is much more around from the very get go students having to work as teams and be much more in control for themselves of how they go and I re understand their own questions and then work together and work individually to go and seek answers and pull information together so that they're understanding the way that that knowledge is constructed, I think, in a much stronger way and clearer way than I, some other medical schools do and that that for me is very much one of the strengths of the way we educate students but I think it also it's fed into as well by this tension that you get when you deal with medical students where there is this 
desire to be given absolute certainty and answers for everything. And often medical students fairly early on in their careers and, and sometimes as they progress will struggle with being given areas of uncertainty and things that we just don't have answers to. And, and to some extent that that can be powerful. It can be powerful for a, a senior clinician, a senior educator to sit there and go, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. And um, what's more, sometimes nobody knows the answer to this and then use that as an introduction to. But actually, how would we start to think about how we then answer these questions and these areas of un unknowns and these areas of uncertainty? But you've got to get students through that over that uncomfortableness of having to face the fact that there are areas that are just not known and there are answers we can't give them and they find that very difficult. But I think if you can get them over that and then get them to start thinking about research and starting to think about how you would then phrase those questions and what things might be involved in answering them and moving that forward, particularly as it relates to clinical care, then then that becomes a really powerful tool, I think, in, in teaching students and getting them to think about research and research practice and how that then comes back to what Joanne knows, which is the where, how do we get the knowledge and how do we construct it and where does it come from, rather than just being given a piece of knowledge and told to go away and use it. Thanks, Matt. In fairness, I have a lot of conversations with academics from different disciplines and they often encounter that fixed mindset towards knowledge from their students, regardless of the field. At the same time, colloquially, I would I recognize that medicine is one of those fields where the general public thinks that they are clear answers for everything. The doc doctor would give them a clear answer to everything and actually um, medicine is not as fixed with its answers um, as we might think. And I'm talking about this from the perspective of a patient as opposed to a doctor, but I've, I've come to, to learn all of this. Um, Joanne, Matt referred to the way you kind of have progressed and evolved this thinking starting from the inquiry-based model that is quite uh, quite helpful for, for students. Could you just, let's come back to my original question, come back to that challenge to education in the way we link research and teaching uh, in medical education? So I'm conscious that I'm more familiar of how PBL, program-based learning is taught in, in others than in HIMSS, because although I've been in Holyoke for four years now, I don't actually get involved with the, with the problem-based learning delivery in the same way. But the way it was being delivered in the unit I was based at when I was doing my postgraduate certificate and teaching whatever is where I wrote my critical reflections on it. So, so my my thinking on PBL is probably still coloured by that, if I'm being honest, um, just to give myself a caveat, given my boss is in the room. But um, for me, there's an issue in problem based learning as a concept, not necessarily how it's delivered at Hollywood, because, yes, it is about helping people be curious, go and discover, uncover ideas and knowledge. But in my experience, it doesn't get to the root of how that knowledge was constructed in the first place they try and integrate this knowledge and that's where their anxiety comes in because they go well which bits of this do i need to know for the exam but they don't we don't really teach them how to how to integrate knowledge that comes from completely different 
paradigms, you know, epistemologies, whatever, whatever words we would never use for them. So we, we've had a conversation in the Academy of Primary Care about whether we should start a, a special study module or something on clinical epistemology, but it just freaked out the entire research community because they find the concept of epistemology quite challenging anyway. So the idea of teaching it to 18 year olds, but if you were on a, um, a sociology undergraduate course, you would absolutely be studying the philosophy of science and the philosophy of knowledge and how does society construct knowledge and ideas. So I think we get fearful of taking our students there, probably for good reason, because the curriculum so packed and, and everything else as well. But maybe to go back to this idea of, of traditional and more um, different models of medical schools and how we teach. So I, I was taught my my medical undergraduate probably was quite traditional it was you know 18 months of pre pre-clinical learning and then clinical learning they were introducing problem-based learning in my final year of medical school so that was my earliest contact with it but actually one of the things i got out of that introduction to basic science and it wasn't just physiology biochemistry it was also the basic social sciences was an appreciation of the limitations of that science going and sitting in a lab and and playing with with stuff in a lab made me appreciate more than I, than I think I would have maybe it's just the way I learn but you know the nice neat textbooks that show all these lovely diagrammatic representations of how antibodies work or whatever are actually based on somebody's interpretation of sitting in a lab staring at a, a screen with a load of numbers on it and saying well in this situation the number was this in this situation it's that so possibly we can infer that I mean I I, I even Partly, again, maybe shouldn't admit this, but because I was looking to get out of medicine, I intercalated as my way out of my medical degree. I, I somehow came back, but but I spent a year in a lab with there were four of us intercalating on the same course on a um, clinical sciences or something, and all four of us were were gobsmacked by that's a technical term by the um, by the experience of actually how labs work and how you construct knowledge in labs of putting um whatever blots and things in microwaves to, to for a few seconds just to see if the control and the and the experimental one looked any different so we could say there was at least a difference between the two groups even though we had no idea what what it was so i think there's something about teaching basic science not because we want students to be able to recite the krebs cycle but because we want them to understand the limitations of the knowledge the models that that they get from that that they then assume or that or at some point in their training they start to assume as true and then that for me is is part of the contribution to why they struggle so much with doing tailored care which is about uncertainty but it's not just it's not uncertain just because we don't know stuff and eventually we'll know it it's because intrinsically knowledge you know again we're getting into different ideas of how the world works but but for me as a whole person-centered clinician there is no there is no absolute truth it therefore is a knowledge that is created in practice in co collaboration with uh, any so so that's what um probably yes my my um my thoughts on problem-based learning i think you're right to some extent around around some of the issues you you, you brought up around problem-based learning that yes it doesn't and unless you do something that very specifically starts to address 
that, then it doesn't help students understand how that knowledge is constructed. They are accessing things that are accepted as true or two different versions of what's true, which then they find very difficult, which, as you say, which one of these versions of true is the one I need to memorise for the exam without actually fully understanding that they're both true, depending on how you look at it. But if you understand where that has come from and how that 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 knowledge or that belief or understanding has has been developed. But I think that's also then why it's, as you say, it's important that we actually get them learning about how to do research and what research methodology is, whether it be sitting in a lab or doing a retrospective clinical study trying to you know go pull out 10 years worth of medical notes and try and interpret people's handwriting and you know see because whatever it might be to understand actually a how labor intensive all of this stuff is what those limitations are and and actually yeah as you say what what, what are the levels of certainty around some of this that that then and not just that, but but understanding that what's true today may well not be true tomorrow. And and that also is incredibly difficult. But again, it, it requires that understanding as you get trained as a medical practitioner, a healthcare worker. It really does require you to understand how research is done, how that knowledge and understanding is generated, where it comes from and what it's influenced by. I it. it I do find it I find it quite difficult sometimes when people get very, very, very dogmatic about, you know, this is the truth in terms of, you know, the way a disease is developed or what the treatment is. It is the single uncontestable truth and the only thing that will ever be true. And you think, yeah, until tomorrow when someone publishes something different that tells us that actually this understanding is is changed. And I, and I don't think as well, we always help ourselves in medicine with the way that we use language around uncertainty. One of, one of my favourite things is to make sure I keep reminding students that if we talk about things being cryptogenic, that means we have no idea what caused it. If we call something a primary membranous nephropathy from, from my area of clinical practice, that just means you have something wrong with your kidneys. We have no idea what caused it. If you know the, the there are these terminologies, but but you get that false certainty of having a name that you can stick on it. You know, cryptogenic pulmonary fibrosis. Gosh, we know exactly what that is. Well, no, cryptogenic just means you've got scarred lungs, and we have no idea what's driven it. And if we don't know what's driven it, then we don't know what the best treatment is. And there are what I found really interesting. You know, and I again I use this as an example with students. They come through my clinic. It's something that we see in my clinic, so it's a, a good example. But you know primary membranous nephropathy there's unknown treatment cause well actually eight nine years ago there was a set of antibodies that were discovered that are in the circulation they're absolutely pathogenic they cause it and now we know what is the cause of 90 percent of this disease we know much better what it is and actually we now stop calling that primary membranous nephropathy we still use that term to mean that proportion of people who we haven't found a cause for, but we've gone from having 90% of people with it that we don't know to 10% of people where we don't know. But unless you understand that actually the way we use that language is hiding that lack of knowledge and lack of understanding, and that all of that still needs to be done, then, then you get that false certainty. So there is, there is the way we use language that also, I think, masks and hides and stops people understanding the role of research within all of this as well, the way they link. And how far do you think that 
assessment parts of education contributes to that. And in particular, I'm thinking the the understandable but contestable um, drive to having uh, automated assessment processes to, that we can scale up so we can we can do everything by some sort of MCQ or computer marked thing, which means we therefore have to have a very definable concrete set of language and words and ideas and concepts that we can effectively I, I'm speaking now as someone who isn't an educator as their primary area of work but uses education as a tool in what I do but it's probably the area I find most challenging and I'm most challenged on by my students as well. Again I think I think you're right and I, I it's a conversation I get involved in a lot of the time is the difference between we can write an MCQ to well we should write an MCQ because it actually does allow us to find out whether a student has understood this or not or is able to apply that knowledge um, and I there is a sometimes I think a reluctance to say do you know what the, there are these huge areas of practice that we want to know that students can do and understand and understand the nuances of that we, we cannot possibly assess by MCQ it just does not allow for that nuanced discussion, um, which of course is what would actually happen in practice. You would have the nuanced discussion with the colleagues and nuanced discussion with the patients. You you can't test that in an MCQ. It is then difficult because you then do still have to balance that against the workload that's involved and the complexity that's involved in trying to assess large numbers of students and their true understanding and ability to understand what some of those limits are and what that, that knowledge and that that is so you you resort to people writing a question that's easy to write that students can answer but isn't actually testing what you really want to test and again i'm 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 reflecting my age and and not being an educator prime primary role but it is an issue for me as a researcher so so in in the times when i was an undergraduate and then when i was training as general practice we still had fivers we still had verbal conversations between two minds two people having a conversation and a judgment about what was going on and and certainly at undergrad that that viva was generally for the sort of distinction level candidate but there was a different type of viva as i understand it for the for the pass fail borderline but but so but then when i go to um when i did my membership of the royal college of gps we still had a viva when i did it and that was a very different assessment of professional practice than than anything I see in the current model. And it was scrapped from MRCGP because it wasn't considered repeatable or, 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 or whatever the right the right language is. And I'm just thinking about it from the point of view of PhD vivas, because that's probably the one context in which I know that we've still got vivas going on. So when you've done your three years or whatever of hard sweat and toil to produce this piece of research, a new contribution to knowledge, the test of it is in a conversation with another scholar. And that whole issue of, of how long we can hold on to that model is one that continues to challenge me. I hope we do, because, because although it creates tensions for students and examiners and supervisors, I still think it's something really important to hold on to the intrinsic uncertainty, back to that word, of, of, of knowledge generation and knowledge production. But 
I don't know, do you, do you see Aviva ever coming back to undergraduate or, or maybe postgraduate clinical assessments? No. <laughs> so I think in terms of the PhD Viva, it, it's absolutely valid because it's doing all of those things that you, you, you're talking about. It's also a very, you know, it's not something you're trying to do at large scale. And, you know, certainly these days, you would always have an independent chair within that room as well as the the you know academic expert assessors but i think the the, the issue around that viva model it just raises all sorts of other issues around bias and the way those are implemented that that has really given them uh, a bad name and that lack of reproducibility lack of validity um is where that problem lies and you you end up with too much disparate practice that you're then again you you are uncertain or less certain whether or not actually students have been assessed on what you think that they were being assessed on and what you wanted to know about them um, so no I don't see it coming back into undergraduate or postgraduate training but I think within within the yeah for, for PhDs and such, it, it's absolutely still a, a reasonable way of assessing people. I'm curious about um, Joanne's comment about assessment and almost like parking the viva to one side. I think at the core of Joanne's questions is again that contestability of knowledge and what we are teaching and therefore what we are assessing. So whether a multiple choice questionnaire or question exam would capture st students' knowledge and understanding of diseases and words that I don't know, so I'm not going to attempt to use, but actually what Joanne is looking for in terms of assessment strategy is seeing how we can assess students' appreciation and understanding of the contestability of knowledge, the contestability of the evidence base, the complexity of how the evidence base can be interpreted and therefore applied to practice. So if I may speak on your behalf, Joanne, and you can absolutely correct me, it is that, that complexity that you felt was potentially captured in the VIVA model. So your question is not necessarily do we need to do the viva but what are the best ways of assessing medical students if we want to prepare them in this particular way for their professional practice that absolutely captures it and and the and the added bit might be or do we not try but we educate them in it and accept the assessment doesn't capture that so the education has to be we have to make sure they've engaged somehow, but it's not necessarily through an assessment process in the same way. There is that tension always, and I think particularly with you know vocational degree, of how certain are we that they have learned and understood everything that we absolutely think they should have done before we give them a degree and allow them to become doctors. And there are areas of practice and areas of understanding and, and particularly that that ability to understand the limitation of knowledge and how to apply that uncertainty to complex situations that is incredibly difficult to assess with any degree of certainty and certainly you know you you there are I don't think there are 
very good ways of doing that in an end of year, you know, big hit exam. I think there are ways that you can do it around workplace based assessment, which is actually, you know, we, if you've got students properly embedded within clinical practice and they are engaging well and having those conversations with their supervisors, then you with sufficient guidance if you can rely on the supervisor's assessments, assuming the supervisor get it. And it comes back to some of the same things that I've just said I don't like about Vivas. You know, you, you run the risk of having the bias and all those other things built into that as well. But again, if you've trained and you've got multiple supervisor, you know, individuals feeding into that assessment, then hopefully you will get some better understanding. And if you're also using that you know written reflective portfolios other things that help students express some of that understanding in different ways that can then be you know they are written and can be looked at and reviewed and assessed and used for discussion as well then you can probably satisfy yourselves that they are you know at a level where where we are comfortable that they are safe around their practice but but yeah it is very very difficult what i heard in your discussion is what is the baseline of a qualified doctor and what therefore needs and must happen in higher education and what needs to happen professionally as, as they, they develop. Um, so so um, Matt knows that I struggle with the current um, parameters around undergraduate education and the discussion we've had about what the GMC expects and, and so on and so forth. So I think we are I, I think we are training people to do the foundation year job, not setting them up sufficiently to do a lifetime of professional practice because we're not going far enough in. And my suggestion for this has been around the fact that we need to not add more into the curriculum because clearly we can't reprioritize the curriculum to have a greater emphasis on the skills, the distinct knowledge work skills and understanding and knowledge of generalist expert generalist practice alongside the specialist medical model that we teach at the moment, because that distinction is about the distinction between how you use knowledge differently in those two different contexts of practice. So I would shift undergraduate practice to better balance generalist and specialist perspectives because I think if we don't do that we are never going to or not never but we are going to find it harder to achieve the change we need at postgraduate level and the Health Education England Future Doctor report recognised the future doctor as a generalist and I might disagree with some of how they they understand what that role is but I think if we're going to successfully achieve that goal we need to plant the seeds of it at undergraduate level so I want to change undergraduate education in order to support the generalist model but I think in doing so I would also therefore change slightly the way we engage with the knowledge work issues at undergraduate level to to support that to happen and again I don't I don't disagree with Joanne on this and I think it's quite clear that a lot of the movement is towards a much more generalist model and things have become far too super specialized and and that has led to a degree of siloization which has not been in the patient's best interest because it's not produced this kind of you know holistic approach to whole person medicine but the difficulty we come up against 
is how you get specialists to teach generalism because it isn't their area of expertise. We have we do have good generalists within secondary care. We have lots of generalists in primary care, but I'm not sure that we have enough of them at the moment to drive that change in undergraduate education. So if we're going to go down that route, we, we need to think about models of healthcare education at an undergraduate level that will allow us to deliver that within the constraints of the placements that, that we have available to teach medical students at the moment. I agree, I think that's a really important point, but I also wonder, I've been thinking the last few days, actually, have we got the same problem about super specialisation of clinical practice? Have we got the same happening in academic practice as well? So we've got super specialist educators, super specialist researchers, and never the twain shall meet. And that's because their job titles, job management plans, performance management is based around that. But how are we going to get the educators and researchers to teach this as well? We, we don't just need clinicians to teach this. This is this is about scholarship. So that's my pushback. I regretted my decision to come to medical school within about three weeks of arriving in medical school uh, and have only in years on got the language to understand why. And it's to do with identity as I see it. So so my identity shaped by my experience before I came into medical school was something about what I would now describe as whole person care, about the importance of understanding daily health for daily living, um, uh, social determinants of health, all these things that I now put labels to back to our conversation about language in, in very different ways. And my experience of arriving in medical school was a clash with my identity. And so my travel through medical school was about trying to find ways where I could reconcile that. It, it shaped the work I do because what matters to me is that person-centred element and what I experienced from an undergraduate, but right the way through into professional practice. I went into public health because I wanted to deal with people, not with diseases. But public health, I was struggling as well because I had two two worlds coming at me, a biomedical world of knowledge and evidence and a person-centered world of knowledge and evidence. So for me, the only way I've been able to make sense of these worlds is through understanding the knowledge construction process and the knowledge work process. I've never understood a separation of research and education because they're both parts of the sort of yin and yang of how do we make sense of the world and therefore do something about it. It's back to what is the thing that gets me up in the morning when we work at a, a stupid hour a week or when things go wrong yet again, whether it's in the clinical world, the academic world or, or a personal world. What is it that, that puts a smile on your face and keeps you going? That for me is the identity bit. I wanted to come back to your conversation about there being colleagues who are focused on medical research and for colleagues who are focused on medical teaching, because if I'm not wrong, Matt, your job title suggests that you are having one foot in the one camp and another foot in the other. So could you just tell us a little bit about what your role involves in the different balances? My title, my job title is Professor of Renal Medicine and Medical Education. And there are different ways of interpreting that title and different views on what that means. Now, for me, what that means is it is a unified process. I do research and I do education and they are, as Joanne says, the yin and the yang, you know, they are the two things that I'm passionate about and I can't 
do one without the other. And that is my job and therefore that is my job title. But I am aware that within institutions there can be different approaches to the way that relationship between education and research is understood and the relative roles and the, the status that's assigned to those roles. Let's see if we want to put it that way. And there is an interpretation of the title of, you know, professor of something and education that somehow you're not an adequate enough researcher to have been promoted purely on that basis, but you've done enough education that it's made up for. So we'll stick that title on and that justifies it in the same way that you will see in some institutions that you could be promoted to a senior lecturer or senior lecturer bracket teaching focused close bracket, you know, so there's that qualifier that suggests somehow it's lesser. And I guess we will also all be aware that within different institutions, the routes to promotion through educational activity, scholarship activity, aside from pure research activity and research income generation and publication can be seen as very different. The job I'm in at the moment, I mean, the institution that both Joanne and I work for, the Hull York Medical School, is the joint medical school of two very different universities. You know, one is a research intensive Russell Group University and the other is a not research intensive university, but is still a fabulous university that has some amazing researchers in it. Um, and the medical school really straddles both of those worlds. And so for me, actually being appointed as Professor of Renal Medicine and Medical Education actually is a recognition that those are the two things I do. That is my identity. I do research and I do education and they are both equally important and they're both valid. And that is, that's me, that's my job. The other job title I hold at the moment here, of course, is Deputy Dean. And part of that role or part of being within the, the sort of senior leadership of the medical school is to be in a position to make sure that those values, I was appointed because those are part of my values. You know, that's why I, I wanted to come to the school because I think the school shares those values. I would in part, I was appointed because those are the values I bring. But the, being in that senior leadership within the school also does allow you to influence the culture within the organisation that reinforces the importance of both teaching and education and that Yes, there are people who are amazing researchers and we want them to be doing as much research as possible, but that does not in any way mean that the role of education is devalued or somehow lesser within the school. And and that to be able to keep maintaining and pushing that culture within this organisation, which is an, a culture which I think actually exists within both of the parent universities as well, from what I've seen here. That is really key as well to to my identity to be able to push to keep that culture the way we want it so that we equally value all of those activities and make sure that both of those activities are going hand in hand. I'd really agree. And so uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure whether I should say it with my boss in the room, but um, so I don't my my official job title, I think on the, on my contract says Professor of Primary Care Research. If I'm in a primary care academic or non-academic context, I talk, I talk about being a professor of primary care because I decline to be defined 
by research. What, I, what my job is, is as, and my identity and everything else, is understanding the knowledge work of primary care in order to make primary care better. I think it's really interesting that, that the way organisational mechanisms have created job titles that don't actually reflect either individual identities or perhaps more importantly even than that the work that they're doing and we're, we're doing a piece of work at the moment with the so I chair the heads of departments group for the society of academic primary care there's 36 I think departments of academic primary care at universities around the UK and one of the things we're just starting to talk about is is looking at the hidden work of academia is what we're talking about um is the is the word we're using but but actually it's about recognizing that if there's a value at all to anything we do it's about supporting primary care and 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 championing primary care and championing um scholarship underpinning primary care primary care is not just a setting in which other people come and do it things it's it has its own value and its own model and understanding of work and so on and so forth but but because universities at the moment just define things by being in it's oversimplifying but just be it's you're either research or education but therefore ignoring things like the engagement work the the thought leadership that goes across those contexts and out into the uh, i know we've got things like knowledge exchange now and all these new terms coming up but there's something that's bigger than any of those siloed activities that's actually the hardest bit of anything that we do. It's the bit that takes energy and time and effort. So do the others as well. But all of this energy and effort is hidden until people realise how valuable it is. And then they want someone to do it. But what we want to do now is to make it visible what's happening and make people aspire to want to do that as part of their role as well. Joan, listening to you, I remembered a, a couple of thoughts I've had over the years uh, engaging in the issue of kind of linking teaching and research. One is that research and teaching currently within higher education, the activities that are funded and managed separately. So that is why we talk about linking research and teaching in higher education, because over the years with this model of higher education, in this country, there has been a separation of funding, there has been a separation of management structures, there has been a separation of contra contracts, and therefore people and practices. So that's the, the kind of the one idea. The second idea is something that um, um, I was kind of playing with in preparation for a conference about 10 years ago, which is the fact that the university happens in between the spaces. Of research and teaching, which is exactly what Joan, you are saying. That's where the value is. That's where the benefit is. That is what makes a high education institution. So with a lot of institutions focusing on linking research and teaching in different ways, they're trying to counteract that structural separation that has taken place over the years. And actually, with the complexity of professional practice and expertise in any field, given the complexity of life <laughs> at the moment and the, the, the intractable problems that we are facing as practitioners of whatever shades um, of, of, um, of, of whatever practice, it, it's becoming even more important that that separation is further counteracted. 
because we're not going to be able to, to solve our professional and societal problems because they require that nuanced practice that Joanne, Joanne talked about. I think that's why this area is so important. To, this topic is so important to, to talk about. I want to come back to uh, Joanne's comment about values and what makes us tick and what makes us survive our jobs given how difficult they are. And obviously I hear about what you do and um, I my first question when Matt was talking about his, his job was when do you sleep? <laughs> so when do you manage rest and care? But I really want to unpack about what makes you tick, what makes you feel happy, what it is that you value in your work, what sustains you um, in, in these uh, challenging jobs. I had an interesting conversation a few years ago with a friend who's not a medic who was particularly has quite a jaundiced view of life and his comment at the time was none of us have ever achieved our childhood ambitions none of us are doing what we wanted to do when we left school which made me think back to think well what, what was it that made me apply to medical school in the first place and um, what drove it was wanting to be involved with medical research and changing treatments and improving treatments that made people better that is you know in broad terms which i completely forgotten about until I had that conversation and realised that then I was doing exactly what I wanted to do when I left school at 18 and a bit like Joanne you know I'd kind of gone all over the place and done different things on the route to getting there it was absolutely not you know that's my goal and that's where I'm heading but that's where I ended up and that's what I do now and the bit that gets me up in the morning and makes me happy with what I do is the belief that actually I'm making a difference to something. You know, I talk to the students and, and some of the trainees about impact. You know, we talk about impact. What's the impact of a medical school? What's the impact of a paper? What's the impact, you know? Actually, the impact for me is, well, have you actually made a difference? Is something better because of what you're doing? So if I can do research, that means we've got better treatments that gives people better quality of life and keeps them alive, that's impact. If I can be working within the medical school, and make sure that our students are getting a good education and a good experience and we can change their you know experience with emplacement and the healthcare culture and environment which which i think we're working towards then that's impact and that makes me happy and if i can be doing that within an organization where i can support the culture of the organization and it's a culture that i want to be working within with teams that are good fun to work with that's what makes me happy and actually I do all of those things and I do find time to sleep and I do find time for self-care and they are unbelievably important but actually that that that's what gets me up you know the belief that I am making a difference and I'm working in organizations where my values matter and I'm working with people that I really enjoy working with and students that are fab. I'm just gonna doff, doff my cat to you and, and say absolutely although I am also because I, I agree with everything you've just said and, and it really resonates. I'm also, you're also challenging me because I'm thinking there are things where I was having impact, but I wasn't enjoying it. And, and I'm trying to work out what that is. And so you're making me think, and I, I haven't thought this through enough, so it's probably complete rubbish. But I think there's something for me on, on top of all of that, there's something about a creative disruption 
is the best I can manage. There's a, there's a bit of me that for a certain amount of time will enjoy doing something because it has a benefit. And so if I think about clinical practice, you know, I, I know there are, I've been doing general practice for long enough now that there are bits of it that I'm actually, you know, I actually might even be quite good at. I'm certainly okay and good enough at. So I can do those and I can do them routinely. And I know that's having a positive impact on a patient and I'm introducing them to a new way of thinking or, or whatever, and that's fine. But I get, if I said bored, that's not the right word because it isn't a boredom. It's not that I, it, but there's something about if I, I think it's actually that I get frustrated because I see things that aren't done as well as I think they could be or should be. And so there has to be that creative disruptive element of things that aren't being done right as well. So the impact is both. But you're absolutely right. Self-care in all of that is fundamental. And and self-care and care of the people around me that, because I, I agree with Matt, it has to come with the creative enjoyment of working with the people as well. So if they're not well and happy, then I can't I can't be creative either. One of my favorite quotes about academic practice. It's a quote from Akerlund and Mac Opine, um, who researched um, the transition of early career academics. Practice represents more than a job. And I think that summarizes what you commented. More than a job academic title um, or, or academic title. And that actually um, what they they were arguing in their research that that our academic practice brings in our purposes and values and what motivates us and what drives us and what allows us to integrate our multifaceted responsibilities, duties, um, skills and knowledge so that it's coherent for us. And it is obvious to our listeners, I think, that you have all done that integration of what your academic practice is in similar but also very unique and very different ways um, and how that continues to motivate and drive you. And for Joanne, that might be more the disruptive change and having impact in the context of change and and, and, and big leaps forward. Uh, I, I get um, a more stable impression of Matt's work that he's driving impact. Um, and that is important but we're not talking about leaps. We're talking about driving things for moving things for, for forward and further and constantly developing and enhancing them. So they are of the same type. They just have different flavor is what my impression is about. I'm glad to see that you're nodding and none of you shaking your head and, 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 and fully disagreeing with my interpretation. I would like to thank you both really for your conversation, for your honesty, for your insight, for, for making us all think. I, I definitely am going to go and reflect on the way you talked about education in particular and professional practice in medicine in particular and about research and scholarship and evidence base and knowledge base um, and our favorite topic assessment. <laughs> so thank you so much to our guests, Professors Joanne Reeve and Matthew Morgan. I hope everybody who's listened to this uh, conversation uh, enjoyed listening to us um, and you continue to listen to the range of the podcast. Thank you for a fascinating conversation. And yes, I will be reflecting um, too. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. 
Same here. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It's been great fun. So thank you very much, Petia, for, for inviting me and setting this up. And yeah, I've got plenty to go away and think about as well. It's been really good. Thank you. Super. Well, thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Thanks for sticking with us. I hope you've really enjoyed this conversation as much as we did, and particularly as much as Petia enjoyed hosting it. We'll be back with our fourth episode very soon.